0: All right, let's go ahead and get into the sermon text this morning. Kevin Larson, our lead pastor, will be preaching God's word for us. Um, so I want to invite you all to take your Bibles, if you have them, and turn to Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27. Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27. Uh, that's page 8. A- Eight thirteen in your black uh, sort of house Bibles. And so if you would, if you're able, go ahead and stand with me uh, as we read God's word. Page 813. So this is the word of the Lord. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Kevin, uh, let me pray for you. Father, thank you for your word. I know so many of us come to the gathering today in different places, maybe with doubt, maybe with fear, maybe with confidence. Regardless, Lord, meet us where we're at. Would you condescend to us and show yourself to us in a beautiful, convicting, powerful way as Kevin preaches and proclaims your word. Would you give him boldness and precision and give us the humility that it takes to receive your word and be changed by it. We pray and ask all these things in your name, Lord. Amen.
1: Thanks, Darren. Um, happy Mother's Day again. That's really all I'm going to say about that. I, I hope that um, what I talk about today would encourage you, if you're a mom who's struggling with parenting or maybe struggling with the fact that you're unable to have kids or perhaps you're single and it feels another lifetime away, I hope these words will comfort you and encourage you this morning. Um, today's passage is, is one of the best known in the Bible and best loved. If you've spent much time in church at all, there's a good chance that you've heard this passage preached, and you've probably heard it preached in in this way. Jesus is stronger than even your storms, and he'll still those storms for you if you just don't fear, if you'll just have faith. But as author David Sucumbi puts it, this might be a better way to destroy faith than create it. You think, well, because what happens if our our marriage doesn't get fixed or if our cancer isn't healed? Is the Lord not big enough or maybe good enough? Why can he calm her storms and not mine? Why can he keep his boat afloat and not mine? What's wrong with my faith? Now, does this story here in Matthew give us some hope in our struggles? Yes. Oh, yeah. And we're going to get there soon. But there's a far greater point here that Matthew, the gospel writer here, is trying to make. Now this book, again, presents Jesus. We've been talking about this. It presents him as the long-awaited king who's going about inaugurating his kingdom on earth. And we've been asking God throughout to help us see him as our king, that we would have our identity only in him, and that we would increasingly together find ourselves about his kingdom, that we'd see that as our purpose together. Matthew, again, has, been, has five alternating cycles of stories about Jesus and sermons from him. Story cycle, story, story sermon, story sermon, five different times. We just completed the first cycle a few weeks back with the Sermon on the Mount. Now we're in the second, which again begins with some stories. Here in chapters eight and nine, we've seen Jesus showing the power of his kingdom. We see the great authority of our king So far, we've seen Christ's authority over disease. Next week, come back next week, we'll see his authority over demons. Today, we see his authority over nature. So with just a word, Jesus commands the wind and the waves, the storms cease, and there's instant peace, right? Well, we'll get to what that means soon enough, but first I want to walk through this passage from the viewpoint of the disciples, Let's start by seeing where the disciples find themselves. They're in a boat, says verse 23, right? So they follow Jesus there. Now, this this section picks up from the passage we saw last week. This crowd is gathering, and Jesus tells his disciples, verse 18, let's head over to the other side. But they get interrupted, they get in a conversation with a couple of guys, and then Jesus throws out these really shocking replies to them, go back, listen to Aaron's message, it was great if you haven't yet. Well, we see them refocus again on their mission today here in verse 23, and his disciples obey, they do what Jesus asked, they follow him, and they get in what was most likely a fishing boat that would hold a group that would fit, you know, roughly what their group size is not many more but where are we you might ask heading to the other side of what what body of water are we talking about well they're leaving a town called Capernaum where Jesus has been healing and they head out onto the sea of Galilee and that helps us understand what's about to happen let's turn to look at what happens to them Now, that sea's surface was more than 600 feet below sea level. It was surrounded by all these mountains that towered over the lake, and that's really what it is, a really big freshwater lake, 13 miles long or so, 8 miles or so wide. The wind could really get whipping around down in that valley, so the Sea of Galilee was known for some really big, sudden storms. Here, a really massive storm blows in, and it about capsizes the boat. The waves are tall. They're flooding the deck. Now, I I tend to not talk much about the Greek behind the English here. It usually doesn't help that much, and I want you to trust your, your translation for sure. But scholars here have pointed out that the term used here for storms is actually the word seismos, or really seismos, but does that sound familiar to you? Have you heard of a seismograph? What does that do? Well, it measures earthquakes, right? You've probably heard of the Richter scale. You know, that was a 5.8 earthquake. So this is not the word usually used for storms. There's something possibly supernatural about this one. It's truly of seismic proportions. Bobby's going to take on the next passage next week with Jesus talking about taking, Jesus taking on demons It's possible many scholars have surmised that we're supposed to understand the same thing actually happening here. Maybe this isn't just a seismic storm, but a satanic one with the devil and his forces trying to take out Jesus before he can win his victory and accomplish our redemption. But in the face of that, catch what Jesus is doing here. He's sleeping like a baby, right? Amy likes to tease me at times for the days back when our babies were still babies. She'd be up in the middle of the night feeding one of them. That baby would be screaming, and I'd be laying right beside her, sleeping like a baby. Who keeps on sleeping through screams like that? Who sleeps through a storm of this magnitude? Somebody who's really exhausted, first of all. So get ready, Aaron. Really, Caitlin, get ready, but get ready, Aaron. Jesus, as a man, ministering like he does, is really, really tired. But who else can sleep like that? Secondly, somebody who's got no worries, right? That's who can snore. Jesus is here, and he's good. He's got no cares at all. But we see that doesn't apply to others in the boat. Let's see how the disciples respond. Listen to verse 25 again. And they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. Back when Amy and I first got married, we were living in Indiana. I was going to seminary just across the river in Louisville. She was working at a hospital, also over there in Kentucky. One day, I was at home. Um, she was about to leave her work to come home, and this big storm was rolling in. And I was, in, I was watching it unfold on the news in real time, It was a tornado warning. It looked really, really bad. I couldn't catch her in time, okay? So I know I look young and all, but I'm not that young anymore. That was actually pre-cell phone time, so I couldn't catch her. She starts driving home, and she hits the bridge that crosses the Ohio River that, you know, divides Indiana and Kentucky. And that's when the back of her car starts shifting to the side and then she's driving again she's going 55 60 or so and she feels her car pushing backwards i mean it seems like she had hit the eye of the tornado i'm at home i'm praying and freaking out and she was in the middle of it truly thinking that it was the end these disciples here are that afraid right as they run to jesus Now, this should tell us, again, something about the storm. This is no ordinary storm. These men that Jesus has called, again, they're what? They're fishermen on this lake. They've seen this before, and they're freaking out. So we see them here running over to Jesus, who's trying to catch up on some rest, and they're shaking him. They're saying, Jesus, do something. We're going to die. They're filled with fear. But don't be too hard on them yet, because at least they know where to go. They, they know that Jesus can help them. Notice then what Jesus says and what he does here. He starts out by doing some rebuking. Verse 26, why are you afraid, oh you of little faith? Why are you guys freaking out? Why is your faith so small? I'm here. They may be running over to him, but they're still clearly not grasping who this man is. Back many years ago when we were meeting in the the Tiger Hotel downtown, uh, before that day's gathering started, this man came in and immediately started going off. Um, He had a kind of a reputation of being downtown and and just kind of doing that a lot, but he came into our gathering before we started and he was just convinced the music was too loud, it was gonna damage our ears, and he just came in shouting. Right, shouting at everyone, getting in in people's faces. Kind of did that all the way up the stairs, into the ballroom, and then I just realized, I've gotta do something here. And I walked over to him, I got right up in his face, and I said, you cannot come in here and do this. You must stop. Now, do you hear me? And I remember saying, do you hear me, three or four times with just increasing volume, Until finally this this smile started to form on his face, and really, no joke here, he said something like, oh, I was just messing with you, I just care about you kids. And then he stopped, and he sat down, and he joined us for worship. It was wild, right? One of those things. But this is what Jesus does here with the ocean, right? Really, with the sea. He rose, verse 26 says, and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there's immediately this great calm. Water's rushing into the boat. There's likely waves 20 foot high or so. Instantly, at a word, it all stops. The gales obey, the waves bow, and there's this quiet. Again, this may hint that this is some supernatural kind of storm. He performs exorcisms, rebuking the demons. He can also tell Satan not to mess with his sea? But more than anything, this draws attention to who Jesus is. Let's see how these men react then. It's fairly humorous if you think about it. They think they're about to die. They're really scared. And then Jesus makes it stop. And now they're even scared more, right? There's this deeper storm that's raging inside of them. They marvel, verse 27 says, and they cry out, What sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? As scholar N.T. Wright puts it, the sea has always been a symbol of wild, untamable power. This was really for most cultures, but the people of Israel, if you didn't know, they weren't really a seafaring people. They didn't like the ocean much. They were land rovers. Right? writes this further, the sea remained, in Jewish writing, a place and a power of darkness and evil, threatening and wild. Who could control the world's waters? Certainly no man. Everyone in that, that time agreed with that. Only the gods, they thought, for Israel. No, the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he can do that. Think back to the beginning when God takes that chaos Those waters, Genesis 1, turns them into cosmos, into order, when he makes the heavens and the earth. Or think back to the Exodus, when the waters of the Red Sea stand before the people of God, God parts them, right? The Israelites walk right on through. Who can do that? The Lord. The disciples here, they see what takes place, and they cry out, who is this guy? And the answer, of course, is, he ain't just a guy. And that really takes us it drives us to the passage's point. Here at the climax, with this question, we get the answer to their question. What is God? What does Matthew want us to see? A couple of things, actually. Who Jesus is, that's the most important thing for sure. But also what it all means for us, how we should respond. Who is Jesus? He's a man, first of all right? Here's one way I often annoy my wife, and I've done this even more since she's been sick. I, I wake up in the night, I worry how she is, I reach over, I touch her gently just to make sure she's okay. And sometimes, you know, occasionally she wakes up, thus the annoyance. If, if the disciples would have done this, they would have felt Jesus breathing, right? He was, he is flesh and blood. He got tired after serving the crowds all day. He had to lay down on the deck of the boat and rest. But he's also God, right? That's the main thing we need to see here. This past week, one of our field guide readings was in Psalm 107, and the psalm contains some words that remind us of these here. Psalm 107, starting at verse 23. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in the midst of their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. So this is a psalm that overall praises God for his care for his people throughout the years, and here, what I read specifically in the dangers that they encountered in the high seas. But as Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner explains... The stilling of a lake storm by our Lord as a sign for disciples ensures that we read this stanza, he's talking about this psalm, as relevant to others besides Israelites and sailors. Yeah, it's relevant to us because we too need to see who Christ is. Who can stand up in a boat, look at a storm, and tell it to shut up, Right? Who talks to the weather like it's a child and expects it to immediately obey? Only one, right? The God of the universe. So do we see that in Jesus here in this passage and in our lives? He's man. Yeah, there's so much comfort in that. We could talk about that too. But there's even more as we realize that he's God. Something else I want you to see though. So again, I said this at the beginning, but what have we been saying Matthew's big theme is? Well, look at the slide. Jesus is going around saying that God's kingdom has come. He's saying that he is the long-awaited king. Hold that thought, though. Let's think back to the beginning again. The Lord makes Adam and Eve. He puts them in the garden like kings, ruling over a kingdom under God himself, What does he tell them? Listen to verse 28 of Genesis chapter 1. It reads, And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Wow, what else is Jesus doing? Is he's commanding those waves? Well, Maybe exercising dominion as man was intended. Maybe subduing the earth like humans were supposed to. Yeah, indeed he is. He's saying to everyone he will see, hey, I'm the new, better Adam. I rule over the heavens and earth. This is my kingdom. I'm the king. I'm going to make it all new. So listen to me, people. That's the second main point we need to see. The first, who Jesus is. He's God. He's the king. The second is how we respond. He wants us to see him and believe, to listen to him. So on one hand, the disciples' question here urges us to see him in all his glory. Jesus' question here tells us to put our trust in him. He says again in verse 26, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? So he says, guys, come on, you shouldn't have worried. More than that, you didn't need to worry. I'm in the boat, right here, right now. You could have been totally getting some rest, just like me. There's no safer place that you possibly could have been. I empower itself, and I'm your friend. Why Why is your faith so small? You see, it's not just a matter of who Jesus is. It's a matter of where Jesus is. And with that, I want to think now what this means for us today. I don't really think this story is an allegory, per se, although the church fathers, like they did most of the Gospels, tended to take it this way. But I don't think it's too hard to see ourselves right in the middle of this story. Because think about where we find ourselves today. If we call ourselves disciples... If we follow Jesus in this wild, scary world, we're right there with him. We're in the boat with him. Where is Jesus? He's right next to us. He's not just God. We know that he's God with us, right? He's Emmanuel. Shouldn't that make a difference in our lives? Yes. Ponder then what also happens to us here. We go through lots of storms. Right? God and his sovereignty let Satan throw hellfire straight at us. All manner of sufferings and trials from people, from nature, from the evil systems of this world: infidelity and divorce, ovarian cancer and cardiac arrest, systemic racism, wars and tornadoes, joblessness and poverty. Fatal car accidents that steal away teens, best friends that one day turn their backs. We walk through so many storms as we walk through this world. And it's tempting, don't you think, to wonder if Jesus might just be asleep, right? Asleep at the wheel. What else do people signal when they roll over and go to sleep? They don't care. We can so easily think that that describes Jesus. He doesn't care, he's not good, and he's just content to let me suffer and die. Turn with me then to how we so often respond. Well, sometimes we'll take the approach that we curl up in a ball and go to sleep ourselves. We feel even more alone, even more without hope. But we often cry out to God, and like here, even lash out, "'Where are you, Jesus?' I'm going to die. Will you not help me, Lord? Again, it's at least good that we're going to Him, right? Matthew Henry once explained Jesus doesn't rebuke us for coming to Him in prayer. No, He rebukes us for not trusting Him as we do. Let's think then about how He responds to us. He asks, Why we're so frightened? Why our faith is still so small if he's the God of the universe, if he's the king of the world? Why are we running around in panic on the deck? Yeah, here, Jesus as a man is in deep sleep, but certainly not as God. As Psalm 121.4 puts it, behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. We could be resting because he's always at work. There can be a storm out there, but there can be a calm in here if we believe. Can you hear him saying that to you in your trials? Can you squint to see through the storm, beyond the clouds, some stars that are shining, that are twinkling, that are proclaiming his love for you? Now, as I kick things off, we can read this passage in a really poor way. Chant a prayer, Jesus will fix your marriage now. Conjure up, another, conjure up enough faith, and that disability will disappear. Hear me, Jesus can heal. We should surely go to him and ask, and he will at times. And we'll see him work wonders as we walk through this book. But those wonders, Jesus does, they, they won't happen all the time here, And they point ahead until the day when he returns, when his kingdom comes in full, and then when his Revelation 21, one puts it, the sea will be no more. What, the sea will be no more? I remember my wife hearing that passage, I think for the first time, and getting kind of upset about it. I mean, she loves the beach, I mean, she loves the waves, who doesn't, right? But I think like so much in Revelation, that's symbolic. All the danger, all the chaos of this fallen creation is gonna go away. So maybe think about it this way, Amy. Maybe you'll be able to wave your arms, snap your fingers, and command the tide yourself as you exercise dominion again. Or you can tell the dolphins to jump, that they'll salute and soar. I mean, imagine that. I think there'll be oceans in the new heaven and new earth. There will just be no more drownings, no more trials or burdens of any kind. But you might ask, why trials at all? Why can't God just make them go away? I think he gives us some answers as we read his word, that they test, they prove our faith, they grow, they form us as his people. He is sovereign over, he's at work in these storms. But of course, we're not gonna know all the whys until we're with Jesus in that new world. But I like how Tim Keller has put it. He says basically, if we have a God who is big enough to get angry at, he's also big enough to probably have some reasons that we can't understand. Let's turn now to how we can react Christ's words. Now, I said earlier we can be tempted to think that Jesus doesn't care, that he's sound asleep while we're drowning across the room, and he doesn't want to use all that power to help us. There's another tendency for us to have that he wants to use that power to hurt us. I recently read this, this book by William Kent Kruger called This Tender Land. And in it, the main character, this this boy named Odie, loses this teacher of his, the only mother figure he's really ever had, in a tornado. And then he begins to read that experience back toward God and out toward all of his experiences, and he concludes this. This God, he's a tornado God. That's who he is. Now Jesus is a God of great power. We've seen that who commands the wind and the waves. That should incite in us fear. It should. Apart from Christ, we'll one day encounter his wrath, we'll run into God as a tornado, and it'll be too late at that point to find shelter. But if we're in Christ, if we know him, he knows us, we're in his boat. We're like Noah and the ark, we're safe. Right, We're going to be fine in the flood. And for that reason, in another sense, all of our fear goes away. And we know he doesn't want to hurt. He wants to help. Alistair Begg puts it this way. The God who makes himself known to us in such a way that we find ourselves on our faces before him is the God who, in his mercy, says, get up. You don't need to be afraid. There's Noah. Think of think of Jonah. He's running from God. He gets on a boat. What happened? A big storm comes up. The sailors freak out. So many similarities. Jonah knows what has to happen. He tells them, throw me into the sea. God's anger will be quenched. Everything will be okay. And they comply. And and instantly, the sea gets calm. Jesus... He perfectly does what God asks. He fulfills the mission the Father has given him. But think about it, on that cross, he throws himself in to the storm in our place. God's wrath against us as sinners before him is also appeased, and we can draw near to him again. We can have peace. But with that, we also Can't doubt that Jesus understands our pain because he suffered in ways that we can never comprehend to fully take all of ours away. So, friends, Jesus wants us to see his power and marvel. But he also doesn't want us to just wait until the storm clouds have passed. He wants us to experience the peace of trust in him in the middle of the tornado believing that he's got it all under control and that he's good. In the famous words of C.S. Lewis, he's not safe, but he's good. And that's for us today. This is so hard, you know, for the disciples to get into their thick heads, but we're on the other side of the cross. We can see the full story of redemption. We have his Holy Spirit in us if we're believers. So it's still hard for us to grasp, but we have a more comprehensive understanding. Who is Jesus? He's God in the flesh. Where is Jesus? He's in the boat, here with us. And for that reason, we can rest in faith. Now, as we begin to wrap up, to help us apply these verses, I want to lay out six questions for you to pray about this week, maybe with your MC, your DNA group in your private worship? Um, Here's the first. How big is the Jesus you claim to worship? How big is he? Is he small enough that you can manage? Kind of put him on a shelf, pull him out when you need him. Is he made more in your image? Um, Or does he unsettle you? Does he kind of make you nervous with all that power? If he's not big enough to command your obedience... And worship, he's not also big enough to offer you any help at all. Second, what storms do you need to entrust to him? What is it you're going through right now that threatens to pull you under? How can you see the glory of the king and rest and relax in his care? He's great, he's powerful, but he's also good, he's kind. Third, how are you seeking to hear his voice in the storm? Are you drawing near to him in your pain? Or are you trying to move away from him, as we so often tend to do? Can you hear his words of peace? If we don't read his word, if we don't talk to him in prayer, we will not be marveling and we will not be resting. So I ask you, how are you struggling to see his glory today? Fourth, who's with you there in the boat? Here's what could have happened here. Peter, you know, he was supposed to be the leader. You know, we, knew, we know he had some issues, like we all do. But he should have looked to Andrew, James, and John, and he should have said, hey, hey, guys, like, he totally just healed that leper, right? Did you see what he did with that paralyzed man? Did you see that? Why are we freaking out? Friends, we need community. We need brothers and sisters around us to help us see, to help us trust. People to shake us, people to wake us, to remind us of truth. Who's with you? Fifth, how could you consider leaving his side? Why would you jump out of the boat? There's been a lot of talk about deconstruction over the last few years. Aaron talked about it last week. Deconstruction, this idea of people who've looked at all the pain, all the stuff going on in our culture, especially in the church, and they've just given up on their faith. Let me say, people have been doing that forever. That's why it's addressed so much in the Bible. People still do it today. But hear me say, in not choosing Jesus we're still making a choice to throw ourselves overboard and there's no safety there. Not at all. Sixth, related. Who do you need to pull up on the deck? Who are those, you know, who've pulled away from his church, who you need to go and pull back up to safety? Who are those who've never known Jesus and who need the peace that only can be found in him? God calls us to be people that make disciples, that bring them to our king. Now, I promise not to mention this every week, every time I preach, but most of you know, my wife was diagnosed with cancer back in 2020. Get those scans, ladies, let me say. Don't put that off. But she went back in for some labs and to get some meds this week, Everything looked good, but as Amy recounted to me what the oncologist had said, I felt this sudden, extreme rush of fear. That doctor, along with her surgeon, were really amazed at Amy's response to the chemo and the radiation. That she was doing well, that cancer hadn't returned, and I felt myself starting to freak out. So in a way, and this was foolish, I had started to kind of move on, act like things were normal, but they're they're not even willing to call her in remission for a couple of years. And I thought, what if it does come back? How am I gonna handle that? And I felt myself start to spiral. But words like these give me some peace. They don't promise again, me or Amy or any of us here, for that matter, that cancer won't happen, that it won't come back. But what they do tell us is that if it does, Jesus will be near. Yeah, one day all the chaos will be gone. The sea will be no more. But for now, we're not alone in the boat. We're not out on our own in the storm. So I say, Carus, marvel at his power with me. Rest in his peace with me as well. Let's keep our eyes on our Savior in the eye of the storm. He is the son of God. And it's not just that he has authority over nature. He has authority over disaster, whether it's a tornado or a tumor. The one who rules the waves is with us, Karras. Let's help each other trust that. Let's pray. God, thank you for these words. Sometimes words like these can be so familiar that we can just buzz by them and they can grow stale. But thank you, Lord, um, for a word that reminds us that you are with us and you're completely in control. Help our unbelief. Help us to trust. Help us to not freak out. Help us to honor you as we have um, this presence that's not filled with anxiety um, because we know that you rule that you're the king um, we praise you that, that for, for Jesus and we praise you for the peace he gives in his name, amen